This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by 303 Protectants and Cleaners, designed to take care of the boats, trucks, RVs, and SUVs that you use for your adventures. Because if you like to play outside, your vehicle is gonna take a beating. Oh no, look AJ! We spilled squid! Okay, so that was clearly forced. I convinced my kids to help me produce this ad. But the truth is that about 10 minutes before I recorded that, they did, in fact, spill the chopped up squid we've been using for crab bait all over our boat. And I totally did not freak out, because our vinyl cushions, along with the fiberglass, gel coat, and just about every other surface on the boat have been treated with 303 Aerospace Protectant. 303 was developed over 40 years ago to protect the wing boots on airplanes. But then the founder realized it had all kinds of uses. Today, it's recommended by 25 OEM manufacturers to preserve everything from cars to dirt bikes to ATVs. 303 blocks UV rays to prevent fading, cracking, and premature aging, while also repelling stains, smudges, and dust. It's water-based, so it's safe to use on your exterior trim pieces and even your car's leather seats, which definitely need to be defended. Okay, can I see the, the mud situation? How bad is it? I need to heal. Well, what is all this other stuff? Half a burrito, socks, underwear. Keep your favorite things looking beautiful year after year with the most powerful protectant available. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. The hardest part to me is like anytime you bring it up to someone, there's a lot of like ground rules and like just information that you have to get across instantly, you know, like just the the bare parameters of what the Forest Fen treasure hunt is. And uh, I was wondering, like, do you have that down? Do you have a spiel? Can you take care of that for me? In September 2015, Outside Magazine contributing editor Peter Frick Wright published a story in Outside about a too-good-to-be-true treasure hunt taking place in the American West. Santa Fe Socialite and art dealer Forrest Fenn had filled a box with gold coins, jewels, jade carvings, and gold nuggets placed it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, then published a poem containing clues to its location. Yeah, I mean, look, when I tell people what the heck I spent the last four years doing, I basically say, all right, so about 10 years ago, um, this ex-fighter pilot turned art dealer to the stars of the Southwest uh, buried, or pardon me, not buried, hid a treasure chest uh, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains and wrote a book and a poem that if you could solve the clues of the poem would lead you to the treasure chest and you know over a number of years it became a bit of a phenomenon Uh, at first it started pretty small but after that um you know it, it grew pretty large in 2017 
journalist Dan Barbarisi began reporting a book on the Fen treasure and the tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who went out looking for it. And a lot of people, the number is somewhat up for debate, but a lot of people went out searching for this thing and a lot of people got really obsessed with this thing. And then some crazy things started to happen and uh, some people got a little too obsessed with this thing. And, you know, some people did some stuff that uh, put themselves in bad situations and some people had some real bad luck and, you know, people started dying. Um, And, uh, you know, it only got to some degree more controversial from there. Dan followed the hunt through to its recent jaw-dropping conclusion and broke the story of how the treasure was found and who found it on Outside Magazine's website. You know, yeah, so um, I spent a number of years um, as a treasure hunter and trying to capture the spirit and the story of this whole thing and to try to tell its story and to explain, you know, what happens when you drop a treasure hunt into the modern world and all the things that go right and all the things that go wrong and just what happens in that crazy situation and and what it makes people do and want to do. Now, Dan has a book coming out, Chasing the Thrill, and Peter is working on a super-secret treasure-related project for outside. So we decided... These guys got to talk. Here's Peter. One of the first things I learned from Dan's book is that a lot of searchers fit into a certain demographic. They're generally a little older, like 45 to 60, mostly male, mostly white, slightly right of center politically. And by and large, they're from one of the Rocky Mountain states. The one thing every single Fen searcher has in common? They heard the story of Forrest Fen's treasure, and they believed it. You know, you have you sort of either have two reactions when you hear about this hunt. It's like either it's your reaction of like, cool, I want to be a part of it, or it's just sort of it's like there's no way this is real. And how did you decide, like you personally, how did you decide that it was real? You know, it's funny. I I wasn't as initially skeptical as I think a lot of other people were. Um, because you know, a million times I've told somebody about this thing and they say, Oh, there's no way that guy hid that thing. That doesn't make sense. That's not real, that's a hoax. And Honestly, I didn't have that initial reaction. I more had to have that reaction in a practiced sense. Like my first thought was this thing is real. It's too crazy not to be in some ways. Um, And then, you know, when I really started to say, okay, I'm going to potentially spend years doing this. I need to really try to, you know, assuage that doubt. I need to get to the extent that I can some sort of confirmation that this is real, that this is worth investing that level of time into. Um, so, you know, I went and talked to as many hunters as I could, you know, some of the more well-known ones, um, and various others and tried to kind of get as much confirmation. And a lot of them said the same thing, which was largely, you know, if you knew Forrest, you'll know this was real. He wouldn't have done this just to mess with people. It doesn't work that way. And that's nice. And I think, you know, ultimately it was true, but you know, you can't go on that. So, you know, what I really, when I, when I really started to feel better about it was when I talked to a couple people, um, two of them authors actually, who had witnessed the chest being filled, one of them, Doug Preston, um, that made a big difference to me to say, okay, look, this isn't just some, you know, thing he talked about, like well-known people are willing to stake their reputation on the idea that this thing was there in that, in that vault at some point. And they watched it happen over a number of years. And this has been a thing he's talked about for a long time. And they watched things come in and things come out. Now, you know, there is a leap you have to make, which is, okay, once that thing is no longer in his vault, it went somewhere. Now, did he hide it the way he says he did? That is a leap that a lot of people were unwilling to make. I was pretty willing to make it, you know, because once you've gone through all the trouble of that, what are you going to do? Throw it in the trash? You know, It's like he was doing something with it. 
And at that point, once he spent all those years compiling it, it seemed kind of incongruous to me to the idea that he would then not do the thing he said he did if we could essentially prove he had done all the steps leading up to that point. The bottom line for a lot of searchers is if you want to go searching, you have to assume that it's real. So the next question is why? Why did he put it out there? And the way Fenn described it to me, and pretty much any reporter that found their way to his door, was that he wanted to give people hope. Show them that there was something like magic, mystery in this world. He says he hid the treasure for, quote, every redneck in Texas that has a pickup truck, lost his job, has a wife and eight kids. I wanted to throw the kids in a pickup truck, load some sleeping bags in there, and go looking for the treasure. Get the kids away from their texting machine, out of the game room, and out into the sunshine. End quote. And that's surely part of it. But he came up with the idea in response to a cancer diagnosis. And the hunt made Fen internet famous every 18 months or so. He'll be remembered for this, for better and worse. There may not be a simple answer as to why Fen hid his treasure. And he's such a salesman and showman that it can be tough to take Fen at his word. Well, tell me about your first, your first meeting with, with Forrest. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, that is a guy who has a way of making you feel like he knows you and making you feel special. And, you know, he, you know, he is and it's well known to be a born and practiced salesman. And he certainly proved to be that, you know, so I talked to a lot of people near him before I actually went or at, and asked to talk to him. I tried to, you know, lay the foundation, lay the groundwork. And OK, by the time I'm even going to approach him, I'll have talked to a lot of his confidants and a lot of his people who he likes. And so hopefully they'll put in good words for me. And so, you know, I spent a month or two doing that. And then finally I got in touch and said, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I want to do. I think that there is a book here. I want to tell the story of this hunt, you know, for multiple years. Um, can I get together with you? Uh, you know, this is who I am. And he said, oh, I know your work from the Wall Street Journal. I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to talk. And like, you know, like, I bet you there is a 5% chance he knew my work from the Wall Street Journal. I wrote sports at the Wall Street Journal primarily. You know, I wrote sports business and Yankees coverage. Unless Forrest Fenn is reading that stuff on the regular, which I don't believe he was, he did not know who I was. But he's very good at, you know, playing that game and making people feel that way. And, uh, you know, and and making you believe that he believes that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I found him to be a really deceptively difficult interview. Yes, I agree with that. Like he could talk for days and he could fill the time and like he was never unkind or or you know in any way impolite um the but like he he wouldn't say anything to mm -hmm. me um and uh yeah i never i never got a second crack at him i i, I kept myself in that office for about four hours <laughs> just trying to find like something a little bit you know just an answer i hadn't read already yes you know for a while, I was like the Wall Street Journal Yankee beat writer. And, you know, the most prominent Yankee during my time I was there was Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter was famous for giving you the time, you know, being willing to talk to you, not turning people away, but giving you nothing. I mean, nothing. And, you know, that was his whole thing. He's always going to be polite. Hey, buddy, how you doing? You know, he's going to he never remembered your name. Never. He called everybody buddy. Didn't know anybody's name. Didn't care. <laughs> but he was equally pleasant to everyone. And, you know, he was equally open in terms of his time and equally closed in terms of actually saying anything permanently. And I, you know, Fenn had a lot of that to him. Um, I think that, you know, one was training for the other in the one sense of how do you, 
Hmm. work with this person who is well known and doesn't really need you, but is willing to talk to you. And, you know, you've got to get them to open up and talk. And, you know, even though their whole intention is to give you absolutely nothing and, you know, send you off with a smile. Who would you say you actually know better, Derek Jeter or Forrest Fenn? (laughs) Uh, Almost definitely Forrest Fenn. So that's what it's like, for a reporter at least, to spend time with Forrest Fenn. Every interaction is controlled, on his terms, and he's cautious and somewhat unknowable. Both because he's the maestro of this treasure hunt and protecting this big secret, but also because he's trying to portray his hunt as an uncomplicated, unambiguously good thing. And while it may have started out as a small family treasure hunt, as it grew, that didn't last. And then, as with anything that is this crazy, people started to hear about it. You know, there's a few articles, one in uh, Hemispheres, the United uh, Airlines magazine, that really started to get it out there. Um, There was an article in Newsweek that actually delved a bit into, you know, some of Fenn's uh, darker past. um, And that got a lot of attention and really took it to the next level. Uh, But what really took it to the next level was when it went on the Today Show in 2013. And as soon as that happened, I mean, that's that in my mind is the first of two major turning points in the hunt. Um, and that's, you know, when when it goes from, you know, this little cottage industry kind of friendly little thing into like a worldwide endeavor and it just blows up. Um, I would say that the next major turning point uh, is 2017 because it's when multiple people started dying at once. And there became calls to have the hunt end in earnest. Uh, you know, this requires a little bit of backstory because in 2016, January, uh, the first person to die, Randy Bilyeu, um, died in, uh, you know, in New Mexico when he was searching for the treasure in the Rio Grande. And he drowned, uh, it's believed. And that is a major event. But I don't think of it as a turning point. Um, but it sets the stage for what definitely was, I think, which is then in that June, July period of 2017, when um, in the space of a month, uh, three searchers died and there came, you know, a lot of calls from authority figures, governmental figures, so the state police in New Mexico for Fend and the hunt. And it was a real legitimate open question for a time. You know, this thing went from, I think, universally looked at as a sort of lark, you know, a happy little public good to, oh, no, this could be actually a real problem. This could be a danger to the public. Maybe we shouldn't let this thing continue. Maybe this needs to be stopped. By the end of the hunt, five people had died, which makes hunting for the Fen treasure about as dangerous as scuba diving. But the deaths transform the public perception of the hunt from something hopeful to something with a dark side. And it didn't help that in addition to the deaths, hunters were showing up at Fen's gate and staying until he called 911. One broke onto Forest Fen's property and Fen held him at gunpoint. Another went to jail for harassing Fen's granddaughter. Another started digging a big hole out in the desert and kept digging until he was arrested for it. But most of these instances of overzealous or misguided treasure hunters fall firmly in the category of not Fenn's fault. He couldn't help it if people responded in unpredictable ways or took unnecessary risks to find the treasure chest. But as the hunt wore on, rumors started to surface that there was a dark side to the hunt that was entirely Fenn's doing. There, there was one thing that I had heard in my reporting was was entirely rumor, like completely unsubstantiated um, that that seems like it fully matured when you were writing about it. Um, and, and that was the uh, the Me Too allegations, the 
mm-hmm. then soliciting female searchers for nude pictures and uh, sexual acts and and things like that. Can can you tell me about sort of how those came about? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the general backstory is that um, you know several women on the blogs in the 2015-16 ish period made allegations that um Forrest Fenn was um was soliciting uh you know nude pictures and asking for meetups for sexual acts with women of the search um and you know it became a complicated situation as one would expect um you know once those kind of allegations are made uh there is a lot that's going to be said around them um and there was a lot of fire against the few women who were willing to come out publicly and say some of this stuff um and then there were other people who came out and did offer some you know offer their own voices as well but um i would say that the people who were speaking out against them were much louder um and so you know it was the kind of thing that blew up in the message boards but was not really touched by outside media really at any point um and so it kind of festered uh underneath it all um you know and it was something that you know it was was raised to me honestly in even the first conversation i ever had about the hunt with somebody in it and i didn't know what they were talking about at the time i just could not even understand what he was talking about um and then you know, there's references made to it on the blogs over time. And I didn't understand a lot of it, honestly. And then at a certain point, I was like, there's something here. I got to go back and try to figure out what happened here. And it's hard to do because a lot of the things have been taken down at this point. Um, a lot of the threads that were existing, you know, in that 2015, 16 period. But, you know, you can you can do some digging and, and there's stuff to be found. Um, you know, there's people that have screenshots and there's things that still exist and emails and that kind of stuff. Um and so, you know, this has been a very, very controversial subject and one that, you know, I think a lot of people did not want to see the light of day at all. But look, it's part of the story. It is. Um, and, uh, you know, there, these allegations are not one or two people. Um, I have talked to well more than that. Um, and, you know, some people wanted to go on the record and some people didn't. And some people wanted to and then decided not to, you know, ultimately. And, you know, there's there's various issues there. But, you know, and, and Fen for the record has... Uh, you know, before his death, uh, to me and others, has denied that any of this stuff is real. And he said that the emails were fabricated and, um, and all these things were made up by people who, you know, were angry about the search. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, this is um, it's a controversial subject within the hunt. And um, it's one that I think a lot of media outside the hunt have not wanted to touch because it makes a somewhat simple subject, even. And I say that even in the context of the deaths, you know, in some ways, this is. This is a different kind of complicated than death is, as macabre as that may be to say. Um, but I think it's true. And, you know, I think The Guardian uh, was the first to really deal with it in any way in the fall of 2020. Um, and they wrote something that at least touched on on some of this. But to the uh, for the most part, it has not been touched by any real media outside of that. Um, but look, in, in my opinion, this is part of the story. So it's hard to, you know, feel like you're telling about what really happened without talking about this a little yeah yeah do, do you think it it changes how we look at how we remember this not the man himself but this thing that he created well the hunt is the man himself so 
you know, Forest Fen's treasure hunt is inexorably tied up in Forest Fen. You, to be good at Forest Fen's hunt, to solve Forest Fen's hunt, you have to know everything about Forest Fen. That's the way he designed it. Um, you know, this is a hunt that is, it's, it's about the wilderness, but it's about the man. Um, you know, you are supposed to read his book and learn his life story and hear his tales of Americana and of things past and get to know him. And, you know, you must, to some extent, become obsessed with Forrest Fenn if you're ever going to solve Forrest Fenn's puzzle. So I don't think it's true to say it's not about him. I think it very much is about him. Um, and I think the two are impossible to separate, separate that. So, yeah, I would say it's very hard to deal with one subject without dealing with the other. If you think about it, most treasure hunt stories do eventually land as cautionary tales about how the allure of wealth and riches is a moral trap, or the unintended consequences make finding treasure a devil's bargain. And partway through Dan's book, he recognizes this and actually quits hunting. Tell me about the decision you made to, to sort of walk away from the hunt. Like, what, what changed? Well, I mean, a lot of things in the hunt changed. You know, at that time, it was... Um, you know, things were just, they felt like they were getting a little weirder, you know, they were getting a little crazier. There seemed to be more public incidents, more the kind of things we talked about before, you know, with the home invasions and the, the guy digging the hole, the gigantic hole out in New Mexico and, you know, more people getting arrested doing it. Um, it just started to kind of be building on itself. Um, and you know, the more I came to think about like finding the treasure chest, it came to seem like, Oh God, I don't want to do that. Like, you know, you put yourself, you put a target on your back. You know, Fenn had a target on his back. He really did. And he had put that there himself and he accepted that. And I know, you know, as we discussed, you know, he didn't, I don't think wanted that on his family's backs, but, you know, they were in it at that point. Um, but, you know, what happens if you find the treasure? Then the target transfers from him to you, you know, and there's no guarantee that people won't resent you for it, won't be angry at you for it, won't believe that something, you know, ill was done, something nefarious was done to gain access to that. And, you know, like at a certain point it came to me, I was like, I want no part of finding this thing ever. You know, I don't, I don't need that in my life at all. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I, my kids were getting, I had one kid at the time and one was on the way. Um, and it just, it started to feel like, I don't know if, if I really want to go searching for this anymore because it seems like finding it would be more trouble than it's worth. Not that like, you know, I'm talking about this like like I was imminently going to find it. I was not. <laughs> let's be very clear. Not imminently going to find the treasure. But at the same time, you know, it was like, okay, but where's the upside in even doing that if you then realize like that's a bad idea, you know? So it's like, I think I'm good on this, you know? So um, I started just kind of that feeling became a lot stronger than the feeling of I want to go find this thing. So, you know, once it started to be like, there are a lot of, there are a lot of elements in this that I do not think are that pretty. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to probably take my exit from this. But the problem with walking away from the hunt is that it was about to get replaced with a new hunt for whoever had just found Fence Treasure. That's after the break. At the top of the episode, we spoke about 303 Aerospace Protectant which defends your most prized possessions from natural forces like sun, wind, and kids who won't stop messing around with the crab bait. Did you just spill squid all over the back of the boat? Yeah. 303 keeps all kinds of surfaces looking new. Plastic, fiberglass, metal, carbon fiber, rubber, vinyl, and leather. Which means 
It's the one treatment you need to safeguard the vehicles you love to use on your outdoor adventures. Simply spray it on and wipe dry. Unlike many products that leave greasy residues, Rio 3 Aerospace Protectant dries to a clear matte finish. The water-based formula is safe on all types of surfaces. And best of all, a single application restores lost color and luster and lasts for months. So you can spend your time the way you want to, getting out there. We got to call all money. <laughs> well, who's going to clean it? You. No. <laughs> nice try. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021. So before the break, Dan had decided he'd had enough of treasure hunting. and was going to walk away from actually looking for anything. But then about this time last year, both Dan and I got sucked back in when a 32-year-old medical student named Jack Stoof found Fenn's treasure. But it was months before we knew his name. How, how are you going to end the book before, uh, before Jack? Not as well as I ultimately did. Um, <laughs> what, what? That, is, that is the short answer for sure. Um, yeah. did, you have um, a, did you have a, an ending in mind? I did. I mean, I, I had an ending in paper, you know, or on paper. I mean, I had stuff. Ri- I mean, because I, I actually essentially ended the, you know, the handed in draft of the book at the very end of May 2020. Um, you may remo- recall from uh, the way things turned out that very quickly after that, things changed. Um, so, you know, I think within like a week of turning it into my publisher, like the whole thing blew up. So I was like, oh my God. So, um, I had to lop off basically like several ending chapters and just be like, okay, let's see where this thing goes. And, you know, they're not changing the release date of the book. It's still going to be essentially, you know, the spring of 2020, May, June of, sorry, spring of 2021, May or June of that time. So, I've got to just try to follow this thing as best I can, figure out everything I can, and tell the story of what the hell happened here as well as I can before I run out of runway. Whatever I wrote before, crap. So um, <laughs> that's the, the, from my point of view, you know, no one was happier uh, to have uh, Jack find it when he did than me. The find was announced on June 6, 2020. The hunt was over. But supplemental information, like who found it and where and how, was lacking. Even basic questions had no answers. You know, I think everybody reacted differently. And, you know, that is very much to the individual. But what I think was fairly universal in the days and weeks after the find was announced was a feeling of, hey, that's not enough. You know, we kind of got cheated here. It's okay that the hunt is over, but we need more than you're giving us. You know, um, the idea that like this isn't enough. You need to tell us more about this hunt, Forrest Fenn. We need more information. We played your game for so long and that's okay that it's over. But you got to give us something here because we were all part of this thing. We invested in it, you know? Yeah. And so it was it was how long was it until we got more? It was about 10 days until the first pictures were released. Um, And then, you know, that was that did help. That was enough for some for sure. Um. And then, you know, a month after that, uh, it was announced that the treasure had been found in Wyoming. And I think that had less of an impact than people might have thought. Um, you know, I think it was funny. The number of people who were like, I mean, the number of people who said it was in Wyoming after that very much spiked. Oh, my solve said that all along. Oh, it's obvious. 
Um, but then there were a lot of people who were just like, that's ah, not really Wyoming. Uh, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> whatever you say. So, um, you know, I, for the most part, until, you know, Fenn passed on and then things went in a different direction from there, I think that was most of what people got through the summer. Um, and, you know, that, who knows? I, I don't know how much was going to be released if Fenn hadn't died. I don't know how much we would have learned if that hadn't been the case. Obviously, he was going to die eventually, but if he hadn't died in such short order after uh, the treasure being found. Um, but, uh, you know, that certainly changed everything. Four months after the find, Forrest Fenn collapsed at home and was taken to the hospital. He returned home that same day and died surrounded by family. A few weeks later, the finder of Fenn's treasure wrote an anonymous 3,000-word remembrance of him on the website Medium. A risky move, considering that he was being sued by several treasure hunters who thought he had stolen their solution. And you never know who might be able to track you down on the internet. Fenn's death changed everything. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. How so? Well, it prompted uh, Jack to reveal himself. It was his death, not the lawsuit? Well, he revealed his name to me because of the lawsuit, but he revealed his existence and began to speak on Medium um, as a result of the uh, Fenn's death. You know, his first Medium post that let us know that there was a finder who was willing to speak in his own voice on, I believe it was September 22nd, 2020. Um, that was a direct result of Fenn's passing, where he wanted to eulogize him uh, to some extent and was then willing to speak out about the hunt for the first time and about his own existence. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then, and the medium post led you to Jack. Yes, that's right. So yeah, I mean, once he, once he put that out there, I mean, I, you know, there were a lot of people who were like, Oh, Forrest Fenn wrote this before his death or Doug Preston wrote this or Shiloh wrote this or all kinds of other stuff. And you know, like this isn't on the level, whatever. I mean, I didn't feel that for a second, honestly, like you read that thing and it is clear that a hunter wrote this. It is clear that a person who had intimate knowledge of how it feels to go searching for it, wrote this. It is clear that somebody who really had a true understanding of all the little parts of this hunt wrote this and who more than that. And this is maybe one area where I had some insight that not everybody did. The way he related Fenn lined up to me as the way I had had personal dealings with Fenn over a long time, you know, like, yes, that is the forest Fenn I talked to, you know, and the way he would respond to things, react to things and all that. Um, and so I, I, you know, I very quickly was like, oh, no, this is the guy. This this is the guy. I could see that in my mind pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, at that point, it was like, how do I get in touch with him? How do I get him to talk to me? So I wasn't going to just like put my email address in the comments section of his like story, because then any, you know, who anyone could just email you be like, I'm the finder, man. You're like, all right, great. <laughs> thanks. Like that does nothing for me. Literally, you cannot trust any email that would come in like that. Um, but so I found a way because Medium doesn't let you actually contact the author of a post, which is why it's really good for people who are posting anonymously like he was. So um, there's no real mechanism for that, except if you can manage to flag a typo and say there's something wrong that needs to be corrected in the piece, it sends a message to the author of the story um, and basically says, like, here's a correction you need to make. Um, but you get really small amount of space to do that. So I basically, like, I flagged a section of the, the piece and I wrote in it, like, here's who I am. Please email me here, basically, um, in as short as I could and, you know, uh, as few characters as I could muster because it was not a lot. And like very not long after I got an email response back from a, you know, uh, a, an email address that was very connected to the, the search. And, you know, it was very quickly clear that this was the guy and he was emailing back before because of that. And um, I was like, oh, God, here we go. So from that point on, um, you know, I just basically spent months trying to get to know him 
and get him, frankly, to trust me and to want to talk to me in a on the record way um, and to just, you know, tell me things. And, you know, it took a long time. We were not doing that at first. You know, we were just going back and forth, you know, many emails a day about the hunt and about other stuff and all over the place and me basically trying to sell him on why he should talk to me and, you know, him clearly not really wanting to do so and me trying to explain things and going back and like this went on for months. And you know, then we kind of got to know each other over a long period of doing that and talking about other things and all that jazz. But I still didn't know his name. I still didn't know who he was. And then, um, you know, finally in in uh, December, you know, he came to me and said, hey, like, I think my name is going to come out in court at some point. It's certainly a possibility now. So I'm willing to talk to you about it and I'm willing to let you know who I am. And I said, can I tell the larger world then instead of like you just getting out via court document? Can I like tell a story and try to do this in a cohesive way? And he said, yeah, all right, I guess so. And that uh, brings us to our friends at Outside. Um, so, you know, as as you know, I, I contacted uh, your then bosses and said, you know, like, all right, let's get this going. Um, and I think, you know, they had to obviously vet who the heck I was because there's this guy coming out of nowhere saying, hey, um, I have forest fins. I know who the hunter is. I know who the finder is. I can prove it. Um, I need to write a story for you by Monday. Um, it's going to be this long. I'm going to drop it on you here. You've never heard of me before. It's going to be very good. I promise. Thanks. Um, and they just had to be like, okay. So, you know, (laughs) um, so, you know, it was kind of an interesting, it wasn't like a negotiation in any way, shape or form. I wasn't like, you know, pay me this for it. It was like, look, I think you're the right venue for this story. I want to tell it here. It's true. Here's why. Trust me. I can prove it to you. I'm going to get it. I haven't written it yet. (laughs) I'm going to get it to you by like tomorrow. It'll be like 3,500 words. I'll be fine. Um, and so we just basically did that. What is Jack like, like as a guy? Hmm. Um, you know, I don't claim to know him well. I know him more than a lot of people, but you know, I've never met him in person. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to him on a number of occasions via a number of different mediums, but you know, I, I can't claim to know him in any real close sense, but you know, to the extent that I do know him, um, you know, he is a, he's a wary person. That's for sure. You know, he is somebody who he likes the game to be played on his terms. You know, he is very much like Fenn in that way. He is somebody who very much can go down rabbit holes. He is somebody who is not afraid of risk. He is somebody who is not afraid to invest himself wholly in something and to branch out on things. But he is also somebody who, you know, he feels things very deeply and he gets hurt easily um, by things. And like, can you know, he, he feels things a lot, I think. You know, he things impact him a lot. Um, you know, I think, you know, he's somebody who he has said he has had a lot of you know, confidence issues and, you know, has tried a lot of things in his life and and has had a hard time finding things that really fit him in a lot of ways, you know? And, um, you know, I, I think he, I, I think he's like a, an incredibly interesting guy in the sense of, you know, he, the things that allowed him to find the treasure are very much things that I think were part and parcel of his personality where, you know, being obsessive about something, being certain about something, you could view those being stubborn in a lot of ways. You could view those as real negatives, but in those, in this context, I think that's what led him to it. That he was, he didn't, you know, when he was confronted with failure time and again, he didn't say, "Well, I'm just going to go do something else." He said, "No, I think this is right. I just have to find another way of figuring this out. I have to keep attacking the thing I believe in over and over and in different ways until it sorts itself out." Gotcha. Okay. How, what what is he like in an interview? Is he, is um, he a satisfied? Practiced. 
Uh, no, he is not a satisfying interview because he was on this side of it. He was on the other side. He gets it. You know, he knows very well. And that's actually something that I, from the very first times I talked to him, I was like, is this guy in media? He mm. gets how this game works too well. Um, you know, it was like when he finally told me who he was, I honestly had a, a feeling of, oh, I knew it, you know, <laughs> because like he just got it all too well. Um, you know, he understood it all. Uh, he understood how it all worked. And like, you know, that's not something that happens for everybody. He knew all the rules and all that kind of stuff. Interviewing him was tricky because you are, you know, and, and he was very committed to if he didn't want to tell me, he wasn't going to tell me, you know, and we just, just what say, it was. sorry, I'm not going to talk about that. Or yes, what was his I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to get into that. You know, that mm. kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and I be like, okay, and I tried to find a hundred different ways of asking the same thing. I'm not gonna answer that. You know, okay, well, it's like, all right, well, we'll try this again. We'll go this way. Da, 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 da. Um, but you know, he was very effective at putting up a wall um when he wanted to. So, yeah. you know, you have to alter your approach somewhat to account for that, but that's okay. Dan's book has everything you could want from the story of the Fen Treasure. And one huge glaring omission. By the end of it, you still don't know where the treasure was. You don't know where Fenn's nine clues led to. How do you feel about his, or how did he describe his decision not to share the location? Um, he has described it in, in different, you know, he has described different parts of it at different times. Um, you know, I think there are different things going on there. I think, you know, I think he feels a responsibility um, to the site. You know, I mean, he cares, I think maybe more than people either give him credit for or understand about, Fen and his solution and the treasure and the treasure hunt and the significance of the site and that Fen wanted to die there and that he figured it out because of that and that this was a meaningful place to him. I I, I don't want to say that I, I think he's being the caretaker of Fen's legacy in that regard, but I think he does feel a certain responsibility there to the spot and to make sure it's not, you know, just treated as a tourist trap and treated as a, as a place that people go because that would ruin it. I mean, I think he has other reasons for not wanting to reveal the spot, you know, that maybe, maybe at some point he'll have reason to want to do that. You know, maybe at some point it will serve his interest to do so. Um, but right now it doesn't. And I think that it is certainly true and also true that he doesn't want it to get messed up. You know, I think that he does feel like that's not what it's there for, you know, that that's not the point of it. And I think look, it's been a real pain in his ass, honestly, because everyone like hates him for that, that he won't do that. Um, I don't think he maybe saw how much that was going to be the case. But at the same time, this is a stubborn guy. And I don't think he'd find a problem with me saying that, you know, he is a stubborn guy. And just because a lot of people got mad at him is not a good enough reason for him to change what he thinks or believes. Throughout the hunt, lots of searchers like to say that it wasn't really about the treasure. It was about being the person to solve Fenn's riddle. That was the real prize. Some even went so far as to say that if someone did find Fenn's treasure, they should just leave it in place. Maybe just take one little thing, so the fun can continue for everyone else. And it's a nice idea. It's just not what happened. And the reality is that for a lot of people, there's now a big empty space in their lives that used to be filled with treasure. Or at least the idea of it. There's a there's a line near the end of the book as you're kind of coming down for a landing um, and, and you sort of just reference like without the treasure out there, it's sort of a like a duller, more muted wilderness. Do you do you do you really feel that way? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I, I'm going to go a little far afield here, but, 
you know, look, I grew up playing like video games like crazy. Right. And I, st- I still do play them. You know, um, you know, there's a sense of, you know, you're you're out in the world and you're you're questing for something. You know, you see the gamification of the world in a lot of ways. You see the idea that, you know, everything has a purpose. Everything has a point. There's there's something to be found everywhere. There are uh, levels and everything and Easter eggs and all that to be found. The beautiful vista that has in is in front of you is not just beautiful, but it also is a place you are meant to go. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of that in Fence Hunt. And, you know, there's a feeling of that, of exploring with the belief that there is something out there for you to find in Fen's hunt that I don't think is the case just in the natural world. You know, um, that feeling that there is something out there to be found, not just that you're out in the wilderness for its own sake, but you are, you are seeking something, you are searching for something, you're questing for something. Um, I think that did absolutely give me another level of, of depth to being out in these places. They can be both beautiful and also have you have a reason for being out there. And when that reason is gone and that may make me, you know, a not a deep person. But when that reason is taken away, yeah, I think that there is a little bit of dullness to the world. You're not out there seeking this thing that's out there for you to find while you happen to be out in the gorgeous outdoors. You're just out in the wilderness. You're just out for a walk, you know, and yeah, to me, that did add an additional level, like no question about it to have something out there to be out there on the chase for that brought in another plane to me of it all. Absolutely. Hmm. That's interesting. Cause I mean, Forrest Fenn says he started this whole thing to, to keep kids, you know, from playing so many video games. Mm-hmm. And I know, you're saying that that he basically turned the outdoors into a video game. Yeah. Which, you know, look, maybe that ends up with the same result in some ways, you know, but uh, maybe he was actually smarter than us all in that sense. You know, he knew how to get everyone uh, to do that, you know, but um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you give people a reason to get out there and then they come to appreciate it for its own sake, I think would be the goal. Um, And I think that that's has been the case for sure. You know, you so um, but at the same time, when that thing you were seeking is taken away, how can it not make it a little less tantalizing? That was journalist Dan Barbarisi speaking with outside contributing editor Peter Frick Wright. Dan's book on the hunt for Forrest Fenn's treasure is Chasing the Thrill. It's coming out on May 18th. You can order it now at danielbarbarisi.com. Barbarisi is spelled B-A-R-B-A-R-I-S-I. This episode was produced by Peter Frick Wright. Music by Robbie Carver. This episode was brought to you by 303 Protectants and Cleaners, designed to take care of the boats, trucks, RVs, and SUVs that you depend on for your adventures. Outside podcast listeners get 20% off all 303 products for a limited time. Go to 303products.com and use the promo code OUTSIDE2021. That's 303products.com and promo code OUTSIDE2021.